I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Um, I do have a short passage that I would like to read to you to give some context for our time uh, together tonight. Colossians chapter 2, and while we turn there, Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, and I'm just going to read verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Real quick, Brother Connor, would you grab me a bottle of water, please? Thank you. Sorry. Okay. And as you are closing your Bibles, I want to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless the rest of our time together tonight. Jesus, be with us tonight and bless us during the rest of our time together. Lord, help me tonight to be a vessel for you. Let your anointing fall in this place tonight as it already has. Open our hearts to your word. Open our ears to better understand what you have set before us. Lord, help us to not only be hearers of your word, but more importantly, doers of your word. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to learn and apply your word to our lives. And we ask all of these things in your precious, your holy, and your matchless name. And everyone say amen. Tonight, with the help of the Lord, I want to teach to you, teach to you on this subject, in Christ alone. In Christ alone. For some reason, I'm parched all of a sudden. As we read and study Paul's epistles, we see that each one has a dominant theme. Now, Bishop taught a couple weeks back on how all theme in some way to reconciliation, which I will also touch on later. But the dominant theme of the book of Colossians is absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the head of all creation and the church. In fact, there, are, there is no book in the New Testament that presents such a detailed picture of the fullness of Christ. And as we go through chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, may we be impressed to seek those things which are above, to seek Christ. Now, a little background about Colossae. For those who are into geography, Colossae was located about 80 miles inland from the city of Ephesus in the Lycus River Valley in what is today the western part of Turkey. It was a very prominent town in the valley where it was, but by the time the epistle was written, it was merely in the shadow of its neighbors, Laodicea, Laodicea and Hierapolis. It is believed by scholars that the church in Colossae came to be, came to be during Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus. Acts 19 records such. Now, while Paul did not start the church, it was started by a couple of men who visited Paul. These men were Epaphras and Philemon. Paul took a deep interest in this thriving church in Colossae, though Paul had never visited there or been there himself. Leading up to this letter, a major problem arose in Colossae, and Epaphras came to Paul for help. So what was the problem? Well, I'm glad you asked. There were false teachers who were, who were spreading what is called Gnosticism. It is the belief that all matter is evil and only spirit is good. They reasoned that God could not be involved in creation because He is perfect and the matter, the earth, was inherently evil. Now, the Gnostics would essentially pressure people into believing what they did 
into believing what they did without any sort of reasoning other than if they did not, they would be shunned. The people would be shunned if they did not believe what these Gnostics were spreading. They would be looked down upon for not following this belief, basically bullied as we see it now. Now, we know this is not the case, but this is what raised a concern and pushed Paul to write this letter to Colossae. You know what I love about Paul? And I'm sure you love this too, is that while he knew this problem existed, while, these, while this infiltration was attempting to spread throughout these epistles, namely Colossae, he did not first address the problem. No, he first addressed the people of Colossae and celebrated the Colossian church. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are in Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while Paul, again, had never met them, he'd never, he'd never been there, he greeted them as family. In fact, when he was writing this letter, he was in prison. And as faithful brothers in Christ, he greeted them as God's holy ones who were set apart for him. He knew that there was good in Colossae. Well, he heard that there was good in Colossae, obviously because there was some infiltration there from what was not good, correct? Now, now Paul continues this greeting through the next few verses, and we can read there. You can read that for yourselves in a bit. But then something in verse 15 happened. What, What we read now is verse 15, and Paul gets right to his point in his letter. He says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, talking about Jesus, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or, excuse me, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, but wait, there's more. Paul doesn't just leave the Colossians hanging there. He doesn't just leave them on a cliffhanger because in verse 18 he writes, and he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he he might have the what? The preeminence. In all things he might have the preeminence. Now, not only does Paul define preeminence, but he just goes right ahead and says it. This is what that is. Paul is one of those make-it-plain preachers, as we have come to know, as we have read through these epistles this month. When he has something to say, he says it. Now, church, since Christ is preeminent, since He is the beginning, since He is before all things, and by Him all things consist, and since by Him all things were created in heaven and in earth, Hold on. I know we know this, or, or maybe we don't, but read the, book, read the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says what? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we just read from Paul that Christ was in the beginning, and by him, all things were created. So, since Christ was in the beginning, well, you may know where I'm going with this. Since Christ is the image of the invisible God, 
Much as John referred to Jesus as the one who declared or made visible the invisible Father, Paul says that Christ is the icon, uh, which is a Greek word, or the image of the invisible God, which means He is supreme. He is not some second-rate emanation from the true God. He is not a Gnostic step in the ladder to the true God. He is God. And since He is God, and we are created in His image, this means that we ought to give Him that first place trophy in our lives. We ought to put Him first in every single thing that we do. You know, Back a while ago when I was teaching the youth, I know it wasn't that long ago, but I would always use a picture and I would show them, okay, I want you to, I want you to picture like a five-step podium here like you might see when you're watching the Olympics, right? Now, I want you to put God here at the top, and then everything else can fall into place after that. And then I ask him, I'm like, so, so what's here that, that God needs to be? What, what's taking the place of God right here? Why is God not number one in your lives? And they all kind of look at me, well, I'm not sure. What do you need to get rid of so God can be first on your podium, if you will? Amen? Amen. He is supreme, and for the next few moments of our time together, I want to talk about, from Colossians, about just that, His supremacy. The supreme, uh, namely, I want to talk about the supreme reconciliation um, and, Jesus, and how Jesus is the supreme reconciliation. Now, in 1912, when the Titanic sank to the bottom of the ocean, there, there lay in the waters the bodies of so many, many who were helpless. There were upwards of 1,600 people who were not rescued that night. Although sources say that there were other boats around them that could have easily assisted in bringing people to safety, but no, selfishly. Those other boats gave no assistance. Now, to put the picture into modern day, we see a fallen humanity adrift in the sea, alienated, unable to help one another despite some failed individual attempts. Now, this is a picture of a world that desperately needs reconciliation, that desperately needs the harmony and the rightness that brings, or that God brings. There is no doubt about this. We see that every day, right? Do you see it? Because I do. We can see it so very clearly around us. Paul tells us in verses 19 and 20, for it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things to him, unto Himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. With the beliefs that were trying to infiltrate the Colossian church at the time, Paul continues to set things straight. Paul later explains in Colossians 2, 9, again, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God also took pleasure in reconciling to himself all things that were in heaven and earth. With that, everything will be reconciled to him except that which rejects him. Let me say that again. With that, everything will be reconciled to him except that which rejects him. 
Because this is a Bible study, let me show you something else. We know that since the fall of Genesis, that creation has suffered a curse. And further, go with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. Romans 8, 19 through 22. It says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also should be delivered from the bondage of corruption into, those glorious, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Now, church, what this tells us is that creation does actually moan. It does actually groan but also that it will be brought back to its original obedience, like it was before the fall. So again, I say with everything, that everything will be reconciled except that which rejects Him. When we see this reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, it is God who takes the initiative. We read throughout the epistles namely Ephesians, 2 Corinthians. We also read in Romans of the same word use of God reconciling the world unto himself. The only way God could reconcile the world unto himself is to become man. The only way for him to reconcile the world unto himself is to become sin who knew no sin. You see, reconciliation to God is quite one-sided. But listen, here's why. He does virtually everything. All we need to do is respond. I don't know if you're hearing me, church. Christ reconciled the world unto Himself. He died on the cross for your sins. He died on the cross for your neighbor's sins. He died on the cross for your mama's sins, for your daddy's sins. He died on the cross for those who crucified Him. He died on the cross for those who whipped Him 39 times, leaving Him battered to the point of no recognition. All that, and we have merely to respond. Creation only has to respond. Salvation is God's joyous work. It was from the beginning of time the plan that He had set forth for humanity. His reconciliation is twofold, and as we continue to read in Colossians 1, first in verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him, I say, they be things in earth or things in heaven. And also in verse 22, in the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight." Jesus bore the sins so we could be separated from sins. Jesus bore the, separate, bore the separated sins so reconciliation could happen. And as we read in verse 20 again, He made peace through the blood of His cross. The cross is the supreme evidence of the love of God. The length that he would go to reconcile the world unto himself is beyond anything I could ever imagine. 
when Paul uses the words alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds, we read that and think it sounds a bit harsh, but the reality of it is the plain truth. Remember, Paul is one of those make-it-plain type of guys. Paul, a messenger and apostle of Jesus, makes it very clear to the reader today that separation from God is messy. It's tangled and snared with traps and darkness. It's something that is not easy on the eyes. It is something that is not light on the heart. It's something that takes its toll, whether we realize it or not. It's something that if we don't get a hold of it at the right time, it could consume us completely to the point of sheer death. Thankfully, we serve a God, we serve a Savior who bore those things so we can turn to Him when we feel like we're getting off of that path, when we feel like we're getting off of that straight and narrow. We can turn to Him. We can lift our eyes to Him just like Peter did. Instead of turning back to his brothers, he turned to Jesus because he knew Jesus could save him. He still trusted in Jesus no matter what, even though he may have been, I don't know how far he was in the water or what he was in, where he was in context, context to, his, to his brothers in the boat, but I don't think it matters. You know why? Because he reached out to Jesus. His eyes were still fixed on him, even though he kind of dwelt back in, into, his, in, into his own flesh again. He's like, oh, Jesus, you're right there. Save me. And what did Jesus do as a loving Savior? He reached down to him, and he saved him, and he pulled him up again. Oh, come on, somebody. You see where I'm going with that? We, may, we, we see this dark and lost world around us, and we, see, we, and we know just the same how much Jesus loves us and how much he loves them too. I know, my, I know how much he loves my family. I know how much he loves my neighbor. I know how much he loves my boss. Mm. Yep, yep, I said it. I know how much he loves those who persecute me. I know how much he loves those who say vain things and evil things and harsh things about me. I could go on and on, but I'll spare you. Since we have knowledge of life, listen here. Since we have knowledge, I have knowledge, I know some of you may too, knowledge of life outside of Christ, we should do everything we possibly can to be practically blameless and holy in this life. But as I touched on moments ago, again, if you feel yourself getting away, go ahead and reach up to him. He's not going to turn a blind eye. He's not going to, nope, not happening, not today. Mm -mm. Now, he may give you a bit of correction. He may give you a little bit of conviction in your heart, but that's only because he loves you. He loves you enough to provide that, hey, you need to change that. Hey, you need to fix that. Hey, why don't you get rid of that so I, you, can, you can come closer to me? He only does these things because he wants to be closer to us. He only does these things because he wants to see us in heaven one day. He wants to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You see, hell wasn't made for people. Mm-hmm. We must submit ourselves completely to him. We must become what we are in the Lord. But the question still remains, have you responded to Him? Have you submitted yourself completely to Him? Is there something that you've been hindering? 
or that's been hindering your walk um, with God that you just need to let go of. We're going to pray here for just a moment. But what's stopping you? And I wonder if we can't just take the next few moments and pray. Can we pray together right now? Jesus, we call on your precious, holy, mighty, and matchless name. You are the name above all names, and we call on you, Lord, and we ask that you give us guidance we need to get back on track if we've got off course. We call on you, Lord, to continue to be that light in our lives, oh God. Lord, I pray that any hindrance in anyone would be done away with. It's your desire, Lord, to be close to your people. It's your desire, Lord, to lead your people in the way they should go. Lord, we know that sometimes life can throw us curveballs and that seemingly get us off course. But since you did the work on Calvary, we can call on your name. We can ask forgiveness from you. We can repent to you. We can rely on you to draw closer to you forevermore. For help us, Lord, to turn away from any, any way that is not of you, and we need you, Lord. I believe the Lord is ministering to you right now in this very place. Now, it may only be a Wednesday night, but we can still have a move of God. <laughs> we can still hear from the Lord. It doesn't have to be a Wednesday or a Sunday either. It can be a Monday afternoon. It can be a Tuesday morning. It can, it can be a Thursday night. I, it, it don't matter to God. He's not, he's not confined to a building, as you all already know. He goes with you wherever you are. He stands beside you. He goes before you. He takes up your rear. He's with you always. Praise God. Now, having shown us the supremacy in Christ in creation, uh, the, in the church, and in reconciliation, Paul now gives us a supremely great perspective on his resulting uh, ministry. Paul writes about four aspects of his own ministry, his ministerial attitude, his ministerial charge, his ministerial purpose, and his ministerial devotion. Now, on a side note, when we read these epistles, we see often how Paul uses himself as an example when comparing uh, or when, when trying to make kind of a life application to those who are reading and to those who are hearing his letter. You ever read that in those epistles? He says, yeah, I did it this way. You can too. The reason is that so we, as the reader, can relate to what is being written. Anyways, so Paul first writes about, first writes about his ministerial attitude. In verse 24 of chapter 1, Paul writes, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, but why? They brought good to the church. Had he not been willing to suffer, there would not have been church, a church here in Colossae to begin with. You see and read that the gospel has always been spread through missionary hardship. Bishop Powell, you said it in a message some time ago about revival. The prerequisite to revival is persecution. Persecution causes us to pray. When we pray, we receive power. When we receive power, we witness and testify. When we witness and testify, Satan persecutes. When we are persecuted, we pray. And if Satan ever stops persecuting the church, we will stop praying. If there ever comes a point, God forbid, that a church stops praying, then you better believe that revival will also just stop right there. Because we suffer in his afflictions, as Paul wrote, we pray. 
There have been times where I have prayed and I begin to feel something come over me like a weight that I have not experienced before. And it's at those times where God tells me, you are bearing that burden with your brother or sister in Christ. And they're about to have a breakthrough. Anybody ever been there? Well, you're praying for somebody else, and you feel something come over you, like you're bearing something with them, like you're fighting that battle with them. Remember, we don't fight alone. You know, when, when Paul was, was imprisoned and, and he began to worship the Lord, we began to magnify the Lord at midnight, what happened? The, the walls began to shake, the, the gates began to open, and he was set free. Well, there was somebody with him too, you know, and he began to feel those things. He began, and this, this is such a, such a picture we can see too, that when we worship the Lord, those chains can be set free. Those shackles can be loosed. Those gates can be opened. Those doors, can, those walls will fall down. Those strongholds will break. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody. When we suffer for his name's sake, the church is edified. This suffering caused Paul to rejoice. Now, when's the last time you rejoiced during a time of suffering? Maybe you're enduring a hardship right now. Have you rejoiced yet? Have you given God thanks? Ooh. It's tough to give thanks when you're in the middle of this trial. It's tough to say, thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for walking with me through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm in a really dark place right now, Lord, but I thank you because I know you're with me. It's at those times where we need him the most. It's at those times where we need him so that when we come out of that valley, we can celebrate with him and he can be with us on that mountaintop. You know, life is full of, full of those mountains and those valleys, but God is right there with you and everywhere in between. Amen? This suffering caused Paul to rejoice. Your suffering has a purpose. There's a reason for your hardship. Remember that all things work together for the good of those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. One day this trial you are facing will help a brother or sister in need. Because you've already been there and are now through it, you've got a testimony. You can transfer that. You can show that to someone else who is currently enduring the same trial you did. Some of you may have experienced that already. Hey, I've been through that. Let me help you. I know a God who can help you through that, but I want to walk with you because I've been there. I've been down this road before. I know what's coming. You know, I know what may be coming for you too, but here's what I did to try to deter myself away from that. That's a testimony. And when we share that testimony with others, when we share our story with others, they begin to relate to us, and there's a connection made there. Oh, there's a connection. And then, and then they begin to grow because you're teaching them more. And then they want to teach others, so they're serving the Lord. And then they start to lead others to Christ. Amen? Hmm. Another note to make about this verse 24 in chapter 1 is when Paul writes, fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. Now, we know that this does not mean that Paul made up that which was not in the atoning sufferings of Christ. He didn't, he didn't make up what was left behind. Christ suffered all. He atoned all. 
um, we read about the sufficiency of Christ in atonement. It was Christ's works alone. Say it was His alone. Yeah, thank you. What it does help is, uh, with, is our understanding of the close relation between Christ and the church through suffering. Now, listen to this. Before Paul was converted, he had been making Christians suffer, or excuse me, had been making Christ suffer in the people he was persecuting. When Jesus spoke to Saul, now Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was persecuted in the bodies of his believers, in the bodies of his followers. Immediately after Paul's conversion, Jesus said that he would show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of his name. Does that mean we all have a, uh, a, a wish or anything like that, that we all must suffer? But no, we, we may suffer at some point because, remember, Jesus came and he suffered in every way. And sometimes, you know, we, we experience these things from others who may not know Know him yet? You know they may say weird things about us or or mean things about us. You know I talked to my daughter about that too. That sometimes people don't mean what they say, but they say it anyway. Maybe they do mean it. I don't know. I like to think the best in people. But lo and behold, we we must suffer at times. But it's all for the for the goodness of God. It's all for the glory of His church. It's all so that Christ can be edified. It's so that He can be lifted up. Paul knew that his sufferings were for the good of the church. We know that our sufferings are good for that too. Talking about a testimony again. And that they brought him to a special closeness with Christ. Remember that valley where we just got to get so close to him so we can celebrate with him up top. Oh, that the body of Christ would grasp this concept that when they go through things, when they suffer, oh, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who was in the fiery furnace and were joined by a fourth person, the Lord, Paul's experience is the same for Christ was in Paul. While your present suffering may be miserable, the end result of your union with Christ is wonderful. Paul goes on to write in verses 25 through 27 about the ministerial charge. Paul was called to preach the gospel, as we are all charged to do accordingly in Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, 15, and Luke 14, 23, namely. We read that Paul was sent specifically to fulfill the word of God. He was sent to show the Colossians the mystery that was looming throughout about these Gentiles and about how they, too, could be saved. We can and know, and we can and we can know and understand the difficulty for the Jews at the time to process this because the Jews genuinely did not like the Gentiles. Imagine yourself as Paul for a moment. You are sent to a place where God is not welcome, where he's not allowed. And God called you to preach the gospel. How would you go about it? Hmm. I would hope and pray that you would pray first for the Lord to show you and give you what to say and what to do. Amen? That the Lord would guide and direct your every step. With the animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul had to tread with purpose throughout this letter and others to make sure they understood that what they were doing was not okay. Don't get down on these Gentiles. They can be saved too. How many of you believe that correction serves a purpose in the church? Amen. 
with all these things that Paul is writing, he now talks about his ministerial purpose. One simple verse speaks so profoundly to that. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, Whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You see, his message right here in this one little verse was threefold. To proclaim, to warn, and to teach. His writings make this very evident. He proclaimed Christ at the beginning and the end. He then warned everyone, which means that he corrected and admonished them to change. Paul didn't seize up when it came to this. Again, he made it plain that in Christ alone was where everyone needed to rest, was where everyone needed to be, and was also for for everyone needed to remain. In Christ alone is where everyone can find hope. Most importantly, in Christ alone is where everyone should desire to spend their eternity. And finally, he taught Christ to everyone. It is evident throughout Paul's writings that he saw great potential in everyone. And then we read in verse 29, "...whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily." Now, now what's this saying? It's saying ministry takes work. Ministry requires devotion. The greater the call the greater the cost. The greater the cost, the greater the devotion required. No one can have any hope for a biblically authentic ministry without some hard work. Looking at this verse, the word labor is derived from a Greek word that means agony and was used for uh, agonizing in an athletic event or in a fight. The call on a person's life which costs them nothing is not a call at all. Paul made it very evident with his straining of every physical and moral sinew to present every man complete in Christ. He did everything that he could. He gave his all. He, he suffered so that people could be made whole. He suffered so that all could, could, could present every man, again, complete in Christ. Now, a quote from Lou Holtz says this, When all is said and done, there is more said than done. Now, may this not be the case in the church. May this not be the case in the life of a disciple of Christ. Paul's example is one that everyone needs to follow and, to, and, uh, and his drive thereof. Apostolic ministry takes work. It takes commitment. It takes time. It takes energy. And sometimes to the point of, the exa- to the point of exhaustion, all for the sake of, the, of Christ, all for the sake of the growth of the church all for the sake of the edification of Christ and the church. But as we read in what is now chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul begins to write what should be a concern for both the Colossians and the reader today. Remember how I said that Paul starts off with an encouragement and then he moves on to correction? I want to spend the next few moments talking about this supreme concern, Colossians 2, 1 through 5. For I would know that ye, excuse me, for I would... I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, 
that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, it's now that Paul gets up close and personal, even though he's not physically there. In his concern, he models for us what and how our hearts ought to feel for the church. Paul started his portion with an understanding of the agony that the church was facing. He had no idea what the people of Colossae looked like. He knew nothing of their personalities, yet he agonized over them. Why? Because remember, Paul was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. What's more, Paul and the Colossians share the same relationship with Christ. Evermore, Paul was their spiritual father because he had won them through Epaphras. With all of this, Paul had a huge heart for the people here. He was, again, in agony for them and their struggle. We, as disciples of Christ, are called to the same, a heart that is willing to agonize not only over our own little circle, not only our own church, but the church around the world. We've had some prayer meetings here of of people praying specifically for different countries around the world because the Lord laid it on their heart to do so. And I can imagine that they began to feel something in their heart that they hadn't felt before. Maybe a struggle that this country or this place or this person that's overseas may be having because the Lord impressed it upon them to pray. You may be thinking about a place right now that you're like, why is that in my mind right now? Well, I would encourage you to pray. Maybe the Lord put it there. Maybe the Lord put it there so you can, can, can pray over them, so that you can, can intercede for them. Paul started this portion, excuse me. Now, Paul's concern for uh, Colossae was their love for Christ. He wrote his desire in verses 2 and 3, which we just read. Um, knowledge. Uh, and spiritual wisdom, which are treasures, should be sought nowhere else, for they are only found in Him. Paul was saying and encouraging this while the Gnostics were trying to take over, saying, hey, Colossae, keep your eyes fixed on the King. Paul was saying that. His concern was that they were being led astray but that which had, by that which had infiltrated into the, their church. In Christ alone is where they needed to remain. In Christ alone is where the fight for their salvation came. In Christ alone is where the victory is claimed. This is where we need to stay, church. The distractions that come your way only come your way because the devil knows that you are drawing ever near to Christ. Oh, church, you're stirring up some things as you draw nearer to Jesus. You're stirring up some things as you pray more each day. You're stirring up some things as you read and study the Word each day. Don't look at those distractions as a crutch. And may you look at these as an encouragement that you are drawing ever close to Jesus. Obviously not focusing on the distraction, but focusing ever more on the King of Kings. Focusing on the one who is mighty 
in battle. And as your focus remains on Jesus, and as you have received Christ and his salvation, the charge that Jesus speaks through Paul for the remainder of our time is to keep our eyes fixed on him. Verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Speaking further about the distractions in that area, Paul told the Colossians to walk in him. Church, if you have received Christ, I implore you tonight to walk in him. My question about this is that if a person has received Christ, yet they do not walk in him, have they really received him at all? Sometimes I get questions like that in my head. My mind always begs questions like this, and I, and I kind of felt the need to ask that tonight. You know, church, I get that life can sometimes get filled up with distractions. In fact, last night during Excel, we were talking about getting caught up in the daily monotonous things that life has thrown our direction. You remember that, Brother Terry? There are things in life that we just have to take care of. We have bills to pay. We have mouths to feed. We have daily, weekly, and monthly tasks that have to be completed. Otherwise, there will be some further distractions that will come our way. But church, even though those things have to be taken care of, and please understand that I'm not saying to just let those things go, because that's not being a wise steward, if so. Even though we, we take care of those things, it does not mean that we should drift away from the Lord. Those things should not take up so much of our time. You remember that podium. It shouldn't take up so much of our time that it takes the number one place in our hearts. And Jesus is down here at number three or four somewhere because we've got so much to do that we just don't have time for him anymore. God forbid. When Paul writes about being rooted in Christ, he is saying that since we are rooted in Christ, we are dependent on Christ. As a tree gets rooted in the ground, it grows. The only way for a tree to grow is that if there are nutrients in the ground to help that tree grow. We, being rooted in Christ, are given lots of nutrients, namely the Word of God, that we can turn to any time and every time we have a need. We receive power. We receive the power. We receive the peace, the love, the joy, the grace, the mercy, the healing, the deliverance. Oh, hallelujah. Church, I leave you with this supreme charge as we come to a close tonight. It's simply this. Stay rooted in Christ alone. Keep walking in Christ alone. And keep your eyes fixed on Christ alone. And continue to stay established in the faith as you were taught. Oh, it's not just something we learn about for a little bit at the beginning and then move on to something else. Salvation's not just something that happens right then and there. No, it stays with you for the remainder of your lives through this thing called consecration. As we go on throughout our lives, we continue to learn more about Him. We continue to draw closer to Him and draw further away from the world while impacting the world at the same time. Every day, every day. It's, it's, as we love Jesus, as we learn more and more and, and more because with that love comes greater devotion to him. With devotion comes the desire for greater sacrifice, saying, more of you, Lord, and less 
of me is what I need. I wonder if we have some saints here tonight. I wonder if we have some people who are watching online tonight in these closing moments together who will stand with me and lift up their voices to Christ alone right now. I wonder if we have some people who will set aside the distractions, if but for a moment, and just rest in Him for a moment. Oh, Jesus, we call on You right now, oh God. We lift up our voices to You, oh God. We draw nearer and nearer to You, Lord Jesus, putting away every distraction, putting away every fear, putting away every doubt, putting away everything that's not of You right now in this place so that we can receive from You right now in this very place. Lord Jesus, we call on Your name. We call on Your name for healing. We call on Your name for deliverance. We call on Your name for the truth that sets us free, Lord God. Oh, we call on you, Jesus. Oh, come on, church. Just pray to him for a moment. Come on. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Oh, God, and we put our trust in you. We put our hope in you. We find our hope in you, Jesus. We find our healing in you. We find our peace that passes understanding in you and you alone, Lord Jesus. There's nothing else that can take your place. There's nothing else that can fill us up like you fill us up, oh, God. Lord, every void that we have, you can fill every void. You see the depths of our heart, oh, God, and you know what we need, and you give us what we need, Lord Jesus. And, oh, we call on you right now. Right now, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And why don't we just begin to clap our hands to the Lord and rejoice all over this place. Come on, rejoice through his goodness. Rejoice for his grace. Come on, rejoice in your long suffering. In the name of Jesus. Yeah, that's it right there. Hallelujah. Come on, clap your hands to the Lord. Oh, lift up your voices in this place. Yes, oh God. Yes, oh God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Praise God. Thank you all for joining me tonight. It was a blessing to be here with you all. I encourage you again to, to, to keep walking in Christ, to keep living in Christ alone. Jesus' name. Greet one another. In Jesus' name, be blessed. Drive home safely tonight, and we will see you all on Sunday morning for service again. In Jesus' name.